Well, good morning once again and welcome. Uh, as you've heard, we're in the season of Lent, the days approaching Holy Week and Easter where we especially remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In preparation for that, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament book of uh, Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is where we'll be today, where God speaks these famous words, these famous ten words to the nation of Israel from a mountain in thunder and fire and smoke. This is where we get the, the Ten Commandments. Really exciting, right, the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, though, as Larry mentioned last week, the Ten Commandments, they do get kind of neglected, even in church world today. People in America, I think he mentioned last week, know the ingredients to the Big Mac better than they know the Ten Commandments. I'll just add to that that people know the members of the Brady Bunch better than we know the Ten Commandments, if you still know who the Brady Bunch were. Uh, but, you know, we just also, I wonder if we're a little skittish when it comes to rules as Americans. We don't really love rules. One of the least fun parts about being a youth pastor was the beginning of every summer camp and every retreat. You got to get all the kids together. We sit down and then you have to go over the rules for the week, which is really fun when you just get to kick things off being the bad guy, you know, and you try to do it in a way that's like, hey, these are fun rules to obey. And uh, yeah, <laughs> you try to make it interesting, not too serious, but serious enough where if you don't listen, I will send you home, kid, you know, but we just, we tend to not like hearing about rules because we see them as one dimensional, mostly as a restriction on our own personal freedom. When we hear don't do this or thou shalt not, oh, I don't like that. It's a restriction on my own personal freedom. But as it turns out, Love will always involve some restrictions on your personal freedom. Love involves constraints, boundaries, yeah, you might say rules. There's a French novelist by the name of Francois Sagan. She was not a Christian novelist uh, by any means, but she hit the nail on the head in a 1983 interview where she was asked if she had lived the free and autonomous life that she had written so much about in her novels. And she answered um, brilliantly, I think. She said, yes, I was obviously less free when I was in love with someone, but one's not in love all the time. Apart from that, I'm free. I'm free apart from love. <laughs> but if you're in love, the constraints of a relationship really matter to you. And oftentimes, those constraints are transformed to delight. You mean I have to give up Friday night with the guys to go out with her? <laughs> okay, no problem. When you're in love, it changes things. And so the love of God in Jesus Christ, it can transform us to see the law as more than just one-dimensional, more than just thou shalt not do this or that. Uh, growing up, my aunt and uncle, they had one of those 3D illusion pieces of art. These were popular maybe in the 90s. I haven't seen one in a long time. Have you guys ever seen one of these things where it's a 3D piece of art that's, there, there's a picture, you know, hidden in the, what looks like just random shapes and stuff. And in this picture, the Statue of Liberty was hidden in the art. 
And you can only see it with just the right perspective and focus. You have to look at it just right. And as a kid, I would just sit and stare at this, this photo. I was told that the Statue of Liberty was there, but I could not see it for the life of me. And I'm sure I lied at least twice uh, when somebody, yeah, you see it? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see it. Uh, but when challenged by my sister with detailed questions about the picture, I quickly retreated to something else. But one day, years later, I think they moved it to their garage, <laughs> and it clicked. I finally saw her, Lady Liberty. There she really was, you know, in 3D, and I was floored. If you want to see these commandments in 3D, you don't just need a new perspective. You're going to need a new heart. The great problem with Israel is that they were given the law, but they did not have transformed hearts to follow God's laws. And the rest of the story in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy play this out until Moses, nearly exasperated, says at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 29, he summons all Israel together and says, You've seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And he's not very optimistic about the future of the people of Israel. But he goes on to say that one day, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. In the whole Old Testament, the prophets like Ezekiel, they cling to this hope for a future covenant when they write, I, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah says it like, I will write my laws on your heart. So if you're going to see the commandments as more than just one-dimensional, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do that. If you want to see them in 3D, you need a new heart. And it's a heart that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, where paradoxically, at the same time, you are set free from needing to keep the law in order to please God or make you right. And yet somehow you're also set free to now want to love him and please him and keep his laws from the heart. So it's only in Christ that we'll be able to see these commandments that we look at in the coming weeks as the law of liberty in the frame rather than just one-dimensional words of death. There's much more that we could say here, but for now I'd like us to turn to an unexpected source to help us see the 3D or maybe 4D nature of the commandments. And that is a letter from Martin Luther to his barber. Yeah, so the Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation, and yes, he wrote a letter to his barber. I assume that you do some, you know, these things as well. I do not. Uh, I would be writing to myself, and <laughs> it would be letters of lament at that. So, in, in this letter, he really wrote a letter to his beloved barber, 
uh, to try to teach him how to pray. And as uh, he did this, surprisingly, he used the Ten Commandments to teach this barber how to pray. Martin Luther said he would pray through the Ten Commandments most every day. And he said the commandments, they, they can fashion a, four, a, a braid of four strands, if you will. Or, he says, you could think of them as like four types of books to help you pray. The first, I brought some props today. No, I'm not going to read these books to you. That would be like a 37-hour sermon. But uh, he, he said you can use the Ten Commandments first as a textbook to teach you to pray. A textbook. Uh, something that gives us instruction about God and what he asks of us. So first, a textbook. And then second, you could use it as a hymnal. This is a Baptist hymnal. Daniel, sorry, I stole this from your office this morning. I hope you weren't looking for that. And uh, it's a hymnal that we can use to give thanks and praise to God for his command, a way to give thanks and praise. And then third, you can use the commands as a journal. So a textbook, a hymnal, and a journal. A way to confess. A way to confess our sins that we've fallen woefully short of keeping the command. So here in this journal, this is my journal, and there's all kinds of Terrible secret sins written. I'm just kidding. It's blank. So if any of you are thinking about coming to steal this journal in between after the service, shame on you. For just mind your own spiritual business. And then uh, last is we can use the commandments as a, just a prayer book. He says is the last way. This is a, a prayer book. Every moment holy. It's a, it's a great prayer book. And you can use it as a way to receive the blessing of Jesus as he forgives our transgressions and teaches us to walk anew in the commandments that God has given him. So we're going to use Martin Luther's approach today to work through the first two commandments, starting with verse 3, commandment number 1. You shall have no other gods before me. Pretty straightforward. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's work through it. First, a textbook. What does this commandment teach us about God? Again, kind of straightforward. He's the one true God. Teaches us to not worship any other gods. Tells us who we are to worship. Okay, sweet, got it. Moving on. I won't bow down to Osiris or Ra or Zeus or any of those. But it's worth pausing to reflect on this command. You don't want to miss how radical this would have been in the ancient world. Like, everyone worshipped multiple gods. It was just assumed that there were many gods that would vie for the attention of their worshipers. So to call a people who had been steeped in 400 years of Egyptian religion to worship one god would be a, a radical command. And while our part of the modern world may not embrace polytheism as they did in, back in the day, although, let's face it, much of the world still does, we do live in a world that has fully embraced pluralism. The idea that any God will do, so long as you're sincere in your belief, it's all really the same God behind different aliases anyway. But the God of the Bible sets himself apart. At the beginning of Exodus 20, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, away from the worship of their gods. He says, I'm not the same thing as Ra or Osiris or Allah or Brahman. And I am asking for your total commitment and loyal love. The first commandment is almost like a marriage vow. No other gods before me. 
It's exclusive, and it's deeply personal. This is not an impersonal command. It's no wonder that idolatry is most often compared with spiritual adultery in the Bible. So, God begins these Ten Commands with the most personal and intimate of claims. I will be your God, and you must have no other gods before me. And this leads us into the hymn book, into a way that we can pray and give give Him thanks. In Martin Luther's words, he says, Here I earnestly consider that God expects and teaches me to trust Him sincerely in all things, and that it is His most earnest purpose to be my God. I give thanks for His infinite compassion, by which He has come to me in such a fatherly way, and unasked, unbidden, and unmerited has offered to be my God, to care for me, and to be my comfort, guardian, help, and strength in every time of need. We poor mortals have sought out so many gods and would have to seek them still if He did not enable us to hear Him openly tell us in our own language that He intends to be our God. How could we ever in all eternity thank Him enough? Have you ever thought of the first commandment like that as a way to give God praise for Him setting His love on you, unbidden, unmerited, and offer to care for you with unending love and compassion. This is how Jesus helps us begin to see the commandments in more than just one dimension. So that's the hymnal. Next for the journal, it's confession time. Again, you might be tempted to think, well, I don't worship any other gods that I know of. I don't have a shrine in my house or any little statues or on the dash of my car or anything. But you know, ancient people People today who are polytheists and do idol worship, they're not dumb, right? It's not really about the statues. It's about what the statues represent. While we don't worship Baal or Zeus or Venus, we certainly do worship what they represent. Success, power, pleasure. The ancients just gave them a formal name and a shrine but it's the same thing. What is an idol? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it helpfully. He says, an idol is anything in my life that occupies a place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is something that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts me so easily that I give my time and attention and money to it effortlessly. I remember one time Sam Williams, one of our elders, he referenced a song from the band Lifehouse. It goes like, every time I see your face, my heart takes off on a high-speed chase. What is it that makes your heart take off on a high-speed chase? If you want to think more about this during Lent, uh, I would recommend that you just Google David Pallison X-ray questions. David Pallison X-ray questions, where he asks a penetrating list of about 35 questions that get after what our functional or counterfeit gods really are, our idols. Questions like this, here's a sampling. What makes you tick? What sun does your planet revolve around? Where do you find your garden of delight? What lights up your world? What really matters to you? What do you organize your life around? That was one question. 
Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, and security? What or whom do you trust? Whose performance matters? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? Who can make it better, make it work, make it safe, make it successful? Whom must you please? Whose opinion of you counts? From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? Whose value system do you measure yourself against? In whose eyes are you living? Whose love and approval do you need? It's worth thinking through the whole list. If you're lacking conviction of sin these days, I would just say Google, X-ray questions, David Pallison. Sit down and take some time to read and think through that list. And of course, it's not that we totally drop God to worship these other things. The problem is in the little word, and. We try to worship God, and. Jen Wilkin uh, helpfully writes this. She says, our idolatry is a both-and arrangement. I need God, and I need a spouse. I need God, and I need a smaller waist size. I need God, and I need good health. I need God, and I need a well-padded bank account. Nothing and no one comes close to you. Nothing could ever come close, we sing. But man, we try. Sometimes we try. And not that like having spouses or losing weight are bad things. But as it's been said, to take a good thing and make it a God thing is a bad thing. But God will not have it this way. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And Jesus says it like this. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. He applies it here to money and says, you cannot worship both God and money. Our and problem. Uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung compares this to a husband coming home saying, honey, it's good to see you. I want to introduce someone who's very special to me. Don't get me wrong. You're also very special to me, but I've met someone else. She's lovely, and I'm going to spend some time with her, but I'm also going to spend a lot of time with you. I just want to let you know that some nights I'm going to be with her instead. I think you two will get along just fine. You'll be great friends. After all, you both mean so much to me. How should the wife react to this? Yeah, he is jealous for me, the song says. And how often we have stirred up his jealousy by worshiping God and fill in the blank. This command leaves a lot to be confessed. But then fourth in this command is a prayer book, a prayer of hope and confidence that although I have given myself over to counterfeit gods countless times in some way or another, Jesus has always trusted the Father. And in his faithfulness, he bore the curse for my unfaithfulness so that I can be forgiven and given a new heart, a heart that will grow and grow over time to truly love the Lord and him alone. So we can pause and pray for his help that he would continue to soften our hearts and make us more and more faithful, knowing that we are forgiven 
So let's pause and pray. I'll use Martin Luther's words before we move on to the next stop. Let's pray. So my God and Lord, help me by your grace to learn and understand your command more fully every day and to live by it in sincere confidence. Preserve my heart so that I shall never again become forgetful and ungrateful, that I may never seek after other gods or other consolation on earth or in any creature, but cling truly and solely to you, my only God. Amen. All right, that's the first command. Second command, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Okay, so again, we're back to our first book, the textbook. What does this teach us about God and what he asks of us? Well, at first glance, it kind of seems to be saying the same thing as the first commandment. Don't worship any other gods. Haven't we already been over this? But there is a nuance here. Because here the Israelites, they're forbidden from making any carved images or idols that they would worship that represent God, even if it was the true God. So we're not even necessarily talking about false gods or other gods, but making an image to represent the true God. Israel is not forbidden from making any religious art or symbols. God will actually instruct them later when they're building the temple. There's flowers and cherubim like carvings of angels and all sorts of ornate things inside the temple, but a likeness of God himself was not to be created. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubim, and then there was an empty space above them. No image that would represent God. This seems to be uh, Moses' brother Aaron. This seems to be his grave mistake. Uh, Just a few chapters later in the golden calf incident, You know, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, get up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He received gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So it seems that they understood the golden calf to represent the Lord himself who brought them out of Egypt. Now, why is this so bad? Why is this such a big deal to God? Why not make something that, you know, in some way represents him and gives worship to him through that. Well, it's a big deal because you and I don't get to make up what God is like. Paul says in Acts 17, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of a man. So while we might not fashion God into the image of a golden calf, we are often more than happy to fancy a version of him that's much more to our liking. You might say things like, oh, I could never believe in a God who would dot, 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 do something you don't like, basically. I could never believe in a God 
who would allow so much suffering in the world. I could never believe in a God who wouldn't allow people to be with whoever they want to be with. I couldn't follow a God who would ask me to forgive someone who's hurt me so badly. And so we fashion a God more to our liking in our own minds. But if you have a God that always agrees with you, always happens to have the same opinions as you, huh? who never steps on your toes, do you have a real God on your hands? Uh, Pastor Tim Keller points out uh, something really interesting from the movie The Stepford Wives with uh, Matthew Broderick, Ferris Bueller Day Off guy, and Nicole Kidman. If you haven't seen it, again, spoiler alert, this happens in sermons sometimes, sorry. But Matthew Broderick and Nicole Kidman, they move away from their upwardly mobile but very stressful life in the city to an upscale community suburb. But when they get there, they find that something is really amiss in this neighborhood community. All the wives are extremely put together, over the top, fashionable, docile, always perfectly agreeable, and even subservient to their husbands. Now, as the movie goes on, they discover that the women in Stepford have essentially been replaced with robot lookalikes, and Matthew Broderick will have to decide if he wants to go along with the scheme and replace his wife with a dolled-up but completely fake version of her, in which he'll have no more arguing, no more being shown up by his wife, whatever he wants, really but he'll lose the person. If you have a God who never disagrees with you, never makes you uncomfortable, never asks hard things of you, never makes you can reconsider your beliefs and opinions, you don't have a real God, you have a Stepford God. But if he really is there, really a person, you don't get to make him up. <laughs> Instead, you have to learn him as He's shown Himself to be, as He's revealed Himself to us in His Word and in His Son, Jesus Christ. So that's what this commandment teaches us. But next, we can turn to our hymnal and use this commandment as a way to give thanks and praise to God and praise Him that by this commandment, He protects us from giving worship to a false version of Him that doesn't accurately reflect His nature. He's protecting us from that. And then second, we can praise God that He's not left us guessing about what He's like, but in Scripture and in Jesus Christ, who is the spitting image of God, He's revealed His nature to us. This is how the book of Hebrews begins. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. How do you know what God is like? How do you know if you're worshiping the right God, the right version of God? Look at Jesus Christ. Now, this does bring up an interesting practical question for some of us. So, should a Christian watch movies like The Passion? or shows like The Chosen that give a representation of Jesus. Huh. You know, personally, I don't think this command prohibits 
um, watching things like that and using those provided a couple things. One, you don't worship the guys who play Jesus as Jesus. That would be a good start. And then secondly, you understand that these depictions of Christ are only useful to the extent that they faithfully point us to the true image of Christ revealed in Scripture. And sometimes they do, and it's wonderful. But should they distort that at points, perhaps it is best to leave them alone. So, after giving thanks that God has protected us from false worship and given us a true image of Himself in Christ, then we can use this commandment to journal to confess that even if we have not literally bowed down to a graven image, we have often wished that we could reshape God in our own image. Tried to craft an image of Him that's more convenient, perhaps a little less demanding, a little easier, and more to my liking than He really is. We confess, God, I've tried to patch together a Frankenstein version of you that comes from a weak knowledge of Scripture and a very firm knowledge of my own desires. We confess that we squirm sometimes under how He's revealed Himself to us, more holy, more free, and more sovereign than we would like. And so as we confess, we can then pause and pray again and use this commandment as a prayer book to pray something like this. Pray with me again. So, Lord, help me not fashion a false image of you or a version of you that's in my own liking. Help me pay attention to how you've revealed yourself as you are in Christ. Help me to see you rightly that I would love you as I should and worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Now, the last thing about the passage Uh, If you've been paying attention uh, to the passage as a whole, you see that there are other verses that we have not looked at yet. While they're technically not part of the commandments, they do give us context and rationale to keeping them. Why, Why follow these commandments? If the first commandment tells us who we worship, if the second command tells us how we worship, these other verses tell us why we worship. Verses 5 and 6, and then we'll take a quick look at verse 2. Verse 5 says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, the images, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. So why would we worship this God? I see at least four things you could pull out from verses 5 and 6 in verse 2. First, Because we belong to Him. We belong to Him. He says, For I, the Lord, am a jealous God. As Larry said it quite helpfully last week, He's not jealous of anything, but He is jealous for us. Because He loves us. Because we belong to Him and He longs to be our God. He wants you. Like, that's a good and beautiful thing. That God wants you. Earnestly desires you. Not just as a slave or a serf, but as a lover. That's thing number one. Secondly, we worship this God because of the consequences of abandoning Him. It says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This just means that God will not let us off the hook or divert from us the natural consequences 
of hating or neglecting him. This is not talking about deterministic, unfair punishment of the children for the sins of the fathers. Deuteronomy 24 will make that really clear, that fathers shall not be put to death for the sins of the children, nor shall children be put to death for the sins of the fathers. The text is simply stating that if successive generations continue to despise God, they will not be able to avoid the fallout from that. It's like trying to run a car on coffee. The human machine was made to run on God. In this verse, while showing that there are often generational effects of sin, this verse also makes clear that you can't blame your grandpappy for all your problems and sins. It's only in those who share in the sins of the Father, those who hate the Lord, who are punished. Then third, we worship this God because of the certainty of His steadfast love. Notice the imbalance or the asymmetry between His judgment and His mercy. It says, for thousands of generations, He shows steadfast love to those who love Him and keep His commands. We worship this God because He will not forsake those who follow Him. And then fourth, lastly, we worship this God because He set His love on us and delivered us before we even lifted a finger to love Him. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, before the commands come, God says this, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You see, before God gave Israel his law, he gave them his love. Out of slavery, I brought them, it says. And our deliverance is far greater than theirs. Colossians 1 says that he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus Christ came for you before you had any interest in him, before you even knew what his commands were, before you noticed him, he saw you and set his love on you. While you were still a sinner, he died for you. Before you existed, he died for you. His love is a prior love. This is love, 1 John says, not so much that we loved God, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus does not say, if you keep my commandments, I will love you for it. Instead, He first washes the disciples' feet. He breaks bread and pours wine. He says, this is my body broken for you. And then He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now abide in my love. If you keep my commands, if you love me, you will keep my commands. It's a response to his love, but his love is the prior love. So why would we worship this God alone, forsaking all others? Why would we obey this God, forsaking our preferences? Because Christ would be forsaken for you. And if you are in Christ, he's given you his spirit in a new covenant where you more and more both long to and have the ability to love him and keep his commands 
from the heart. So as we approach this table today to meet our God, who is speaking to us not in thunder or fire from a mountain, but in Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant by his blood. We don't approach God more casually because of Jesus, but all the more reverently, trembling with love and joy, confessing and forsaking our idols because we know how much it cost him to deliver us. So this table is open to all who trust and follow Jesus not in perfection, but in earnest faith, clinging to his sacrifice to make them right before God and turning from their sin out of love for him. And if you're not currently following Jesus today, then instead of coming to the table to take the symbol of Jesus' sacrifice, we would invite you to talk directly with God in faith and take Jesus himself as he offers today to be your God, even today. If you are going to come to the table, again, we ask that you use the center and the wall aisles to approach the table and then these other two diagonal aisles to to go back to your seats. And if you'll hold the elements until everyone's come up, I'll come back up and lead us in taking the supper all together. And again, if you're physically unable to approach the table, uh, we have some servers who will be keeping a lookout for you. If you'll raise your bulletin, make contact with them as as folks are coming up, uh, we'll make sure someone brings those to you if you don't have someone who can bring them to you. So let's pray, and then we'll approach the the Lord's table. So Lord, we thank you for speaking to us by these words. Words that without Christ would surely condemn us to death. For who among us has not made other gods besides you? Who has not tried to twist and fashion you into a version that we like better? And so we confess that we are sinners vile indeed. And yet in Christ, by his faithfulness, by his sacrifice, you have done everything necessary to forgive us, cleanse us, and put a new heart within us that is not chained by the law, but set free to keep your laws from the heart. Meet us this, this morning, Christ, as we come to abide with you. May your body and blood be enough to cleanse us and forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. And this we pray through him who loved us. Amen. Table is open.